So this summer we are doing a sermon series called Questions That Matter. Um, Questions are important because these are the questions that were posed by Jesus. And if Jesus asked them, then we should probably wrestle with them and try to answer them. Uh, I've recommended a book called What Did Jesus Ask uh, that you can have as a devotional guide. It's got a lot of different Christian leaders that have contributed to it. But in the Gospels, Jesus asks about 307 questions. And he's, he's, he's also asked about 180 questions, but he doesn't answer specifically very many of the questions. So this is one of the ways that he taught. Rhetorical questions. Making his point by raising a question. And questions matter. Uh, I told you last week that the questions help us grow in our faith. Questions help us grow in our spiritual lives. Questions help us dive deeper to find out more. Questions are important and Jesus asks them all throughout the gospels. Now let's understand the context of what's happening here in in Mark chapter eight. After Peter's declaration about who Jesus is, remember you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus starts talking about his upcoming death and resurrection. And he tells his disciples that he's going to have to undergo great suffering at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, that he will be killed, but that on the third day he will rise again. And what happens? Well, Peter doesn't like this. It makes him uncomfortable. And Peter says, God forbid it, Lord. This cannot happen to you. But Mark tells us that he rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus was frustrated with Peter, his right-hand man. Well, Jesus knew what was coming, and he wasn't afraid. He knew that it was both inevitable and necessary, and that's why he begins this passage on discipleship by saying, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to lose their life, save their life, will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. And then he says this, this is our question. What will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life, or also translated, their soul? Just a few weeks ago, at the end of May, Tim Keller passed away after a a tough battle with pancreatic cancer. Keller was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and he became a leading voice in North America for the Reformed tradition. Not the only voice, but certainly a leading voice. And I've read many of his books over the years, including The Reason for God, The Prodigal God. He's written books about pain and suffering, forgiveness. He wrote a book about preaching. But there was one book that he wrote a few years back that I think might have been his best book. And that book was titled Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Sex, Money, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. In the book, he identifies various things in our lives that we often turn into gods or idols. Idolatry runs rampant in American culture. So I'll quote him. He says, what's an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And then in the book, he talks about some of the most common counterfeit gods, which includes love and sex and money and success and power and self. 
Part of being a Christian means believing that there is more to life than our earthly existence. We have physical bodies. Some of us are better at taking care of them than others. Um, but we also have a soul. And when we die to this life, I, I believe that our soul lives on. Our soul is who we really are. And Jesus was always reminding his disciples of how important it is to tend to the soul. Our physical bodies have limitations. We, we get cancer, heart disease, dementia, um, our knees and our shoulders and our hips give out and they have to be replaced, but our soul lives on. And Jesus wants us to not be so focused on our physical bodies and our earthly life that we neglect to tend to our soul. But isn't it interesting how often we neglect our spiritual life? You know, some say we have everything to live with, but nothing to live for. Many people in our culture, in this culture, long for meaning and for purpose in their lives. In their book that was titled The Spirit Level, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett say this, it's a remarkable paradox that at the pinnacle of human and technical achievement, we find ourselves anxiety-ridden, prone to depression, worried about how others see us, unsure of our friendships, and driven to consume with little or no community life. You know, many people have everything to live with, but they long for something to live for. Jonathan Sachs puts it this way, a consumer society encourages us to spend money that we don't have on products we don't need for a happiness that won't last. Living in a consumer society inflames our discontent. It feeds our sense of inadequacy. It encourages us to make constant comparisons with other people. And so isn't it ironic that broadly speaking, the most affluent people in the world are the ones on anxiety and depression medication, and some of the poorest people in the world are the ones full of joy and gratitude for what they have. What a paradox. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I, I kept my heart from no pleasure. And again, all was vanity and chasing after the wind. We fool ourselves into thinking that material possessions will satisfy our deepest desires in life. They don't. It only works for a while. So back to our question. What will it profit them to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? You know, I think a lot about Nashville. Friday night, some friends of ours gave us a, um, a night downtown um, at the Four Seasons. It was a gift. And this was from a couple months ago. And so Megan and I went because we had to use it in June or by June, right in the middle of the CMA crowds. And um, we kind of celebrated our anniversary on the belated side. But, but, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the skyline and I'm looking at all the new buildings that have gone up and I'm looking at the cranes and I'm thinking of all the companies that are moving here from Boston and California and Chicago and, and New York. And, 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 and we all know this. We live in a town that is red hot, uh, just just growing constantly, but we can get so caught up in trying to keep up with everybody else that we lose our core values and our sense of who we are. And it can happen before we know it. You know, one of the fears about Nashville is that with all of its growth and all the people that are coming here, that we might lose what's made this town so special in the first place. 
Not to mention many people who have grown up in Nashville can no longer afford to come back and live here. What does it profit them to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? What are the different ways that we lose our soul? Well, we work too much. I saw something this week online that had said, years from now, the only people who are going to remember that you stayed late at the office are your kids. And very few people lie on their deathbed and say, I wish I had worked more. You know, those aren't the regrets that people have. We got to work hard and then we stop. Have boundaries. You can't be available all the time. Workaholism is glorified in this country, but it's not really healthy. You know, we justify by saying that we're doing this for our family, but work can become an addiction. Tim Keller says making an idol out of work may mean that you work until you ruin your health or you break the law in order to get ahead. It's been said before that Americans live to work, but people in the rest of the world simply work to live. What's the difference? How do we find the middle ground? How much of our kids' growing up years do we miss because we are slaving away at work? Another way we sell our soul is we worship money. Money's the number one false god in our culture. And yes, it's closely tied to workaholism. Paul says to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. But we have to have money to survive. We have to have money to pay the mortgage and to pay our bills and to live in a town like this. But when money becomes our only focus in life, it leads to a level of shallowness and superficiality that we may not even recognize. Money makes a great servant, but a terrible master. Money tears apart marriages and families and friendships. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, nobody can serve both God and wealth. Does that mean that we can't have money and save money and invest money? No, that's not what that means. But we have to be generous along the way. And we have to use what we have to help other people and not keep it all to ourselves. What about infidelity in marriage? That's another way that we can sell our soul. This isn't a new challenge, but sometimes people make decisions in the heat of a moment that can wreck an entire life of work and trust. Getting married and starting a family, raising a family is hard work. It's not always fun or easy. It requires sacrifice and commitment. But making a decision to cheat on your spouse can bring more pain and hurt to your family than almost anything else. But the statistics say that it still happens all the time. And many people commit adultery without thinking twice about it. Now, now most of the time when, when marriages get to that point, a lot has already happened. Spouses have quit making each other a priority. They've taken each other for granted. Contempt has built up in the marriage. Children have maybe dominated the marriage and the, the, the spouses don't know each other anymore. And all of that points to the fact that we have to nurture our marriage over time. We have to honor our vows over time. And this is hard work, but it's worth it. <clears throat> Another way we sell our soul, longing for social approval. Many people will do and say anything to be accepted <clears throat> by a particular group or a social circle. They will tell people what they want to hear. Um, they will tell them something that they may not believe because they think it's what they want to hear. One of my friends recently said when we were having lunch, he said, man, it really feels like everything in our culture is so radical, 
radical right, radical left? Where are the sensible people? Where's the middle ground? Where are the moderates? And so what we find is that people are trying to fit in to the extremes and they say things that they really don't believe, but they go with the flow and they don't think for themselves. But the reality is people respect you when you think for yourself, when you bring your own perspective, when you speak the truth in love. But so many people live their lives worried about what other people think and will they be fit in and will they be accepted. And so they tell people just what they want to hear. The last thing that I'll mention in terms of the ways that we sell our soul, and I believe this, it's just being too busy. I like the summer because, well, it used to be that summer slowed down. I'm not sure if that's true anymore. But we've become so busy and overscheduled as a culture that we can't do anything well. Um, I said this last week. It's something that I, you know, I, I, I just believe that we are overscheduled, overbooked, and we don't have any margin in our lives. And so to grow spiritually, we have to carve out time to slow down, to be still. The scripture says, be still and know that I am God. But too many of us are so busy to be still. You know, these are just some of the ways that, that we can sell our soul in life. And there's many others. Now, in that book, Counterfeit Gods, which I would recommend to you, Tim Keller said, yes, there's hope. If we begin to realize that idols cannot simply be removed, they have to be replaced. If you only try to uproot them, they grow back, but they can be supplanted by what? By God, by a relationship with Christ, by good genuine friends, by a healthy marriage. But Keller says, it can't just be belief in the existence of God. It has to be a living encounter with the living God. Lots of people believe in God, but far fewer people have a relationship of experiencing God. You might remember Clayton Christensen, he taught at Harvard. He taught innovation. But one of the things he recognized when he would come back to Harvard Business School for his reunions where his classmates were on their third or fourth marriage, their kids wanted nothing to do with them, a couple of them had gone to jail for insider trading. And so he said, man, these people are wealthy and successful, but there's got to be more to life than this. And so he basically said, I'm going to start teaching how to build a life, how to develop character in addition to business innovation. And he wrote that great book called How Will You Measure Your Life? A number of years ago on a Sunday afternoon, I got a phone call from somebody in our church. A person had been in church that morning. They'd heard my message. I don't exactly remember what I was preaching on, but I think I was preaching about how loneliness and social isolation have become a big problem in our culture. And so this particular person was, was older, very successful in business, had made a lot of money, owned many things, but he called me the Sunday afternoon out of the blue and he said, you know, he said, Clay, I've accomplished a lot in my life. I've lived all over the world, different places. I've owned businesses. I've made money. I've spent a lot of money. But he says, now that I've kind of reached the final stage of my life, I realize that I'm lonely. I feel like I'm all by myself. 
And sometimes he said, I wonder if people in my life, if they really love me or if they just love the life that I can provide them. And he was serious. Jesus says, what will it profit you to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? What a great question. Amen.